Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. One of the central questions of human development is the relative roles of nature and nurture, our genes and our environment. But it's hard to isolate these two broad variables since all of us are a unique blend of both. The only exceptions would be identical twins, or triplets, or quadruplets, and so on. But even here, there is a problem, since most twins, like most other siblings, are raised in the same home, thus offering no systematic way to isolate nature from nurture. That is, unless the twins are separated at a very young age, preferably each being raised in a very different environment. Then you get some interesting data. So interesting, in fact, that some researchers have been enticed to go to unethical lengths to produce it. In a new book, Deliberately Divided, Inside the Controversial Study of Twins and Triplets Adopted Apart, world-renowned twins studies expert Nancy Siegel describes an infamous experimental program originating at the Louise Wise Services Child Development Center in New York City, in which psychiatrists directed twins to different homes without telling the adopted parents what they had done. However, the truth about this episode was learned before the study results could be collected, and the two psychiatrists involved, Viola Bernard and later Peter Neubauer, became infamous, although their relative contributions to the episode are still being debated. In Deliberately Divided, Dr. Siegel describes this scandal, and much else besides, including the complex way that twin studies cast light on nature, nurture, and the relationship between the two, as shown by the emerging science of epigenetics. I spoke to Dr. Siegel this week over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. At the center of your book is somebody who really wanted to do studies on twins who were separated and engineered their separation from an adoption agency, as I understand it. This is regarded as deeply unethical. Am I correct that there's no way this would ever happen today? There's no way this would ever happen today because now we have institutional review boards in place and they would never allow this kind of thing to take place. It's just purely unethical. Okay. Now I must be, (laughs) I must be a really bad person because as I was learning about this, my first thought was like, wow, that's, that's a really interesting experiment. Is it okay to regard that as very unethical, but also to be deeply curious about what the experimental results were? I think it's fine to be curious as to what the data might show us. Of course, they collect the data on only four sets of identical twins and one set of triplets. So a total of 11 children is not going to tell us much that we don't have already through better methodologies. It would be of interest. But the problem with looking at that and really making much of that data is that I think it sends the wrong message to future investigators that, yeah, you can do something unethical, but as long as you produce something interesting, it's okay. I think that's the mistake. But as I said, I'm positive there's nothing in there that's really retrievable or anything new. I think if anything, the investigators were finding that the twins separated were very similar. We find that with our rear apart twins studies that are ongoing today. And there's really nothing new that they're going to add. The difference in their study was that they studied twins who were separated at birth. So they were studying infants. So they were getting data and development at real time. The other studies that twins raised apart look at adults who've been 
reunited much later in life. And the interesting thing is that these investigators in New York City in the 60s did everything they could to keep twins apart. And we do everything we can to bring twins together. I should point out that I also have a study that's not unlike theirs, but it's done with the full consent of the twins and their parents. And that is a study of children who were separated indirectly because of the one child policy in China. It was in place from 1979 till 2015. And I'm getting these children at very young ages and following them prospectively as well. So there are lots of ways that you can do these kinds of studies, but in a purely ethical way. And something I wanna correct that you said earlier, Peter Neubauer, who was the psychoanalyst at the Child Development Center, who was one of the key investigators, one gets the impression that he engineered the separation. It's much more complicated than that, John. What actually happened, and we're not even sure of the sequence of events, but the current wisdom or the going wisdom has always been that Dr. Viola Bernard, a psychiatric consultant from Columbia to the Louise Wise Services, had the policy of separating twins because she felt they would do better on their own and would not overburden their parents. And so then, as long as they were being separated, she enlisted the research expertise of Dr. Neubauer. On the other hand, it is also possible that Neubauer had this idea to study separated twins from infancy onward because he was always interested in it. That I got from one of his colleagues. And it's possible that he was a researcher in search of a justification for studying rear apart twins. So we don't really know what came first, the study or the policy. A lot of the twin studies originated by happenstance. Accidents were made in identification or people went home with the wrong children. Surely the number of cases of that is diminishing, at least in developed countries, because we just have more procedural safeguards and identification techniques. I think you mentioned that one doctor in Spain said that within a few minutes of a healthy newborn baby being delivered, you can fingerprint them. Is one of the reasons that specialists like yourself go to other countries to study this sort of thing is that it doesn't happen as much in Western countries? I wouldn't say that doesn't happen as much. I think what our methodologies are enabling us to do is to identify these pairs. And many of these pairs grow up miles apart and have no inkling they're a twin. And unless they're mistaken by somebody who actually has seen the other one, the likelihood of them getting reunited is quite small. Yes, adoption agencies are more sensitive to the importance of sibling and twin relationships and trying their best to keep them together when their adoption placements they have to make. But on the other hand, just the other day, I heard about another pair of twins up in the northeastern part of the United States. So there are many cases of these still waiting to be discovered. Most of the studies have identical twins and a smaller number of fraternals if they have them. But in point of fact, that's the reverse of the population distribution. And it's because, as you said, identical twins are, are mistaken for one another, but they have to be, one has to at least be known by somebody else. Now, in the Neubauer study, that's what happened in many cases, that a twin was recognized by somebody who knew the other one, and that's how they got together. That was the case in the people who saw three identical strangers, you know, that one of the triplets went to a college where he was mistaken for the other one. And then the, the two had their picture in the paper and the third one came along. But the fraternal twins have a tougher time. They have to do it through DNA analysis or a search based upon knowledge of having been born a twin. You mentioned switched at birth twins. I have documented 10 cases of these and I have written about most of them. And we don't know how often these occur, but I will tell you that two independent medical firms looked into this and estimated that 20,000 misplacements of babies occur in U.S. hospitals every year, and most errors are corrected. So you have to imagine that if 20,000 occur a year, not everything is corrected. And you might have seen in the news just the other day that two families who 
had done pregnancies through in vitro fertilization. It turns out that the mothers gave birth to the other one's child. So these mistakes happen. Is there something fundamentally different about the social dynamics when a sibling meets another sibling as opposed to when they are identical twins? Yes, there definitely is because identical twins are genetically alike and they look alike, they behave alike, they process information in similar ways. And it's like seeing an altered version of yourself. In fact, all of us imagine what it would be like if we'd married another person, gone to a different school, taken a different job. But identical twins are in the unique position to actually see themselves in a life unlived. And while they're very, very similar, of course, there are minor differences that we see between them. What is amazing to me, having seen so many identical twins reunited, so many fraternal twins reunited, and actually witnessed some reunions, the identical twins form this immediate bond as if they knew each other all along, where they just have to spill on details, but the basis for the communication and the relationship is there from the moment of meeting. There's a comfort, a physicality too, hugging and touching that I think is quite extraordinary, even among people who are not necessarily touchy-feely types. And you simply don't see this degree of connectedness between siblings or fraternal twins. Now, there are average differences. I mean, you may see fraternal twins who are extremely close and identicals who are not, but on average, this is the pattern that you typically see. Now, there have been some bumps along the way once the reunited twins spend some time together. And in fact, in my book, Deliberately Divided, I showcase all of the reared apart twins, some of who have gone public, some who have not. And I talk about their relationships subsequent to reunion. And, you know, these people did not have a shared social history. And so in some ways, it's easier to walk away from an argument. That's what happened in the case of the triplets. They had a restaurant together. One of them left to become an attorney and the other two remained there and eventually the restaurant was closed. In some of the cases that I interviewed for my book, some of the twins got along beautifully in the beginning, but they disagreed about certain things along the way and then didn't talk for a couple of years and then got back together again. When you have a shared social history, you can walk away momentarily knowing that the relationship is still there. But when you've been raised apart all your life, that security is not always present and the relationship can dissolve and it has in some cases, but not in most. Now I know in the, in the separated Neubauer twins that I write about, in some cases, one twin was raised by a much more affluent family. And so there was a little bit of resentment there. Uh, probably misplaced because it was nobody's fault. It's just the way things happened. But there can be those kinds of resentments. But typically, twins weather them, they get over them. You know, the most dramatic case of twins raised apart that I ever studied was at the University of Minnesota, where we had uh, Jack and Oscar. Jack raised Jewish by his father in Trinidad, and Oscar raised in Nazi Germany as a Catholic. And when they got together, they were enormously similar. But of course, they differed in their political and historical understandings, but they were so fascinated by their similarities that they maintained their relationship. It's hard to imagine not seeing a Jew forming a relationship with one another, but, but the twin pull is that strong and overcame it. And now a commercial message from Skillshare, one of our sponsors for this episode of the Quillette podcast. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. If you're looking to develop your professional skill set, there's plenty of courses to choose from, including logos and branding, web development, film, and video. In my case, I've taken courses on Adobe Photoshop and used that knowledge to design some of the graphics you see on the Quillette website. Skillshare classes include a combination of video lessons and a class project, so you can apply what you've learned. 
Members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, most of which are under 60 minutes with short lessons to fit any schedule. Whether you're a dabbler or a pro, Skillshare will help you experience real improvement with classes designed for real life in a supportive environment. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Quillette and get a one-month free trial premium membership. That's S-K-I-L-L-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. Skillshare.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. One of the maybe more fashionable ideological currents you see in academia now is to suggest that almost everything is nurture. And there's a deep skepticism for a variety of good reasons about probing too deeply into genetic-based explanations in individuals. Have those ideological currents affected your work? It's not affected my work. I'm aware of those currents to some degree, but I really think those kind of people are in the minority. And I believe that many more people now are embracing a genetic perspective. Not that everything is genetic, not at all. Everything's a combination of of both and people do disagree as to the relative proportion. But I think you have to keep in mind a very important concept. And that is that when we talk about 50% genetic for personality or 75% genetic for mental ability, we're talking about variation in the population, individual differences from person to person. In a single individual, you cannot slice apart their personality or their intelligence into a genetic or environmental um, component. Now, 20, 30 years ago, my sense is that environment was much more salient, that people really embraced nurture as opposed to nature, given the the Nazi legacy, given movement for civil rights, given movement among the women's movement, all kinds of things like that pushed against the idea of a genetic perspective. The research still took place, adoption studies, twin studies, and eventually the data just became too difficult to ignore. And with with advances in molecular genetics, where we can tie certain diseases and certain behaviors to specific genes or gene combinations, it's very difficult to ignore this if you're a very reasonable person. And I'll tell you that the people I find the most intelligent and the most accepting, perhaps without the knowledge or educational background, are parents. Parents know right away that what works for one child doesn't work for the second child, particularly parents of fraternal twins who have two different genotypes in their home at exactly the same point in time. In fact, some of the Neubauer twins told me that they thought that a lot of their development was because of nurture, but once they met their twin and saw the similarities, they really changed their thinking on this issue. So the meeting expanded their estimation of how much of their path in life was dictated by nature, you're saying? Absolutely. And I don't like the word dictated, by okay. the way. <laughs> I like the word influenced or guided by or predisposed. Genes do not work in deterministic ways. They work in probabilistic ways. Just like if you have two alcoholic parents, well, yeah, your risk is somewhat higher than somebody who did not have two alcoholic parents, but you're not destined to become alcoholic. There are things that you can do. You can be more vigilant. You can cut down on your alcohol intake. Lots of things that you can do. And you maybe you didn't inherit that combination of genes that would predispose you to alcoholism. But these twins are remarkably the same, even down to fine types of habits. I mean, one pair I interviewed, both wash their hands excessively after touching raw meat. Cleanliness is a big issue for them. So you see these kinds of things that get fashioned out of interactions between the genes and the environment. Well, I have heard just anecdotally in cases where 
the, the similarities between them are extreme right down to kind of man or woman they marry, the kind of profession they choose. But even more than that, I mean, you've got similarities in terms of the kind of unusual toothpaste they like or their nail biting habits or both twins scratch your ear with a paper clip. I mean, you have not just intelligence and personality, which I think are interesting, but not the gee whiz, oh my God phenomenon, but I've just finished a paper on these unusual similarities in twins. And I make the point that I think that the reason identical twins are so similar, even down to their unusual habits that we can't assess systematically across cases, it's because they inherit unusual or specific gene combinations. They're the only ones in the world to share a gene combination, which may give rise to these unusual habits that tend not to run in families that would become disentangled as they reproduce and have their own children. I mentioned the word epigenetics before. It's an area of study where you look at how certain genes are triggered on or turned off based on environmental factors. Could you tell me a little bit about the interaction between those two? In my line of work, we like to partition behavior into genetic and environmental components. And the environment has typically taken the shape of unique environmental experiences that people have apart from their brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, parents, and the ones that they share that make them more alike. But epigenetics is giving us another component to look at. As you say, certain environments may trigger the expression of certain genetic predispositions or may silence them. Now, it may surprise people to learn that if you look at multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, the correlations between identical twins are not one. They're less than one, meaning that the environment is playing a role in everything. And to some degree, it could be this epigenetic profile that modifies the genetic expression. I also want to point out that when we talk about environments, we're also talking about the prenatal environment. What happens to you during the first nine months that you're in the mother's womb? Do you have enough nutrition? Is there fetal crowding? Identical twins have a very unique situation there, much different than fraternals, in that identicals sometimes form this mutual circulation system, which can be very dangerous if it becomes severe, where one child literally bleeds into another and can cause enormous differences in size, health, vigor, even death in the case of one or both twins. Like 99% of people, I think of twins as coming in two flavors, identical and fraternal, which is to say non-identical. One thing I learned from you is that there's this other kind, which is the mother's DNA contribution is common to both children, but there are two different fathers. Has this been systematically studied? And can you explain a little bit about how this kind of twin phenomenon arises? So what happens here, these are called superfecundated twins. And the way it happens is a woman releases two eggs at the same time. And she has sexual relations with different men within that window of opportunity, which is three to four days. And one father fertilizes one egg and the other father fertilizes another. Those twins are going to share their maternal DNA, but not their paternal DNA. So it's a natural process. And these twins would be genetic half siblings. Of course, this can happen even if she has the same partner. It's just that then the children would be full siblings. Now, what is truly fascinating is that this has been replicated using gay males who are in a relationship. And I'm going to be writing about this in my next book, where each partner donates sperm to a common surrogate. And her eggs are extracted, they're fertilized in a petri dish and implanted back into her. And it can happen that the twins again share their maternal DNA, 
but the different eggs are fertilized by a different father. So it's an artificial way of doing it, but it has the same exact outcome. Now, in terms of the others, we don't know how often they occur because they have to be identified. And in fact, the very first case of this happened in the 1800s where a woman had had intercourse with a black man and a white man. There was a case in Japan. Now in Japan, keep in mind that most people there have similar hair and eye color, so things are not gonna be obvious. But when they did a prenatal assessment of the crown to rump length in the babies, it was extremely different. And when the babies were born, they did DNA tests, they determined that they were just half siblings. So far, there have been about 10 documented cases in the world, and I have documented two of them in extensive case studies. And I've often wondered what that would do to ordinary twin studies, because it would make the fraternal twin sample less alike than it should be right? Because you really have half siblings there. But a, a colleague of mine who's more quantitatively sophisticated than I did, did a simulation. And he determined that unless you had really huge numbers of these, it probably wouldn't have a big effect on the data. But in any kind of a case study, a very small sample, I think this is something we have to be aware of. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. I happen to know by way of background, you yourself are a twin. As I understand, it's this is an area of interest from a very young age. Has that family relationship continued to inform your perspective as you've become a scholar? I'll tell you, my interest in twin studies certainly began because I am a fraternal twin. I have a sister, Anne, who looks nothing like me. We share some behaviors. We don't share most of them. and We look very, very different. So I always knew from an early age that there had to be something fundamentally different about us. And when I got to you know, high school and college and learned about genetics and, and psychology and all of that, I realized that we just came into the world packaged very differently. It's not biased me in any way. My research is peer reviewed in scientific journals. It's very consistent with other people are finding. It has helped me because when I recruit subjects and I tell people I'm a twin, it, it immediately sets up a, a point of commonality. In terms of everything else, I think it's made me very sensitive to twin issues. You know, I sometimes imagine what it would have been like if if I'd grown up in the 60s, separated by Louise Wise and discovered I had a twin when I was in my 30s or 40s. It would be devastating. I would feel so robbed of this critically important relationship of someone who's exactly my age with whom I could share so many memories. 
Dr. Nancy Siegel's new book is called Deliberately Divided, Inside the Controversial Study of Twins and Triplets Adopted Apart. And if you want to learn more, her website is drnancysiegeltwins.org. That's drnancysiegeltwins.org. Dr. Siegel, thanks so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.